Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is Shruti Tevati. Shruti has spent over two decades in creative arts, acting in projects ranging from Bollywood blockbusters to independent films. She holds an MBA from the University of Mumbai and a Master's of International Affairs from Columbia University. But after stints in investment banking and tech, she shifted her focus to the arts. And in addition to her acting, she became a playwright, screenwriter, and filmmaker committed to writing and developing authentic stories about the Indian American diaspora. In 2018, she wrote, directed, and acted in the short film Trail Past Prejudice, which premiered at the Delhi International Film Festival, went on to play at several other film festivals in India, Europe, and the U.S., won the Silver Remy Award at Worldfest Houston, and was bought by Shorts TV UK. In 2020, she was selected for the Sundance Collab Directors and Producers Program to develop her first feature, Flares, which received the Feature Award in the Alliance of Women Filmmakers Scriptwriting Competition and was a finalist for the We Screenplay Diverse Voices Screenwriting Lab and the Big Apple Film Festival. Her stage satire, BBGs and Auntie G's, has been performed in San Francisco, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and this year she was selected for the Playground Writers Pool, a leading playwrights incubator. She has also worked with at-risk youth for over 10 years and was awarded a Certificate of Honor by the City and County of San Francisco for creating a positive impact through the arts. So, hello Shruti, welcome to Off Leash Arts. Hello, Tanya. Thank you. It is such a wonderful setting to connect with you again. And I'm excited that you reached out to me and asked me to be a part of this. Thank you. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. Why don't we start at the beginning? How did you originally get involved in the arts? Were you involved in performance when you were a child? Was it something your family did? So um, I grew up in India in a very traditional-minded family where, you know, girls are not encouraged to be in the arts. However, in my early years, I was in Chennai. And like all girls do, at the age of four, I was taken to learn Indian classical dance because that's what all girls did. And so it was part of that uh, indoctrination. And I loved it. And I just took to stage. There is a complete transition that happens to me when I'm on stage. There's a liberation. But as I grew older, I think there was this tussle between my mother trying to keep me indoors. We had moved back up north. And India is a very unique place. Growing up in the 80s, it was dangerous for girls to be out there and seen a lot on stage. That's how my mother presented it to me. So much as I wanted to pursue the arts, I had to put them aside and uh, follow my parents' guidance into a path in education. And I did my MBA and I worked in finance in New York. But I've always nurtured that desire. It was nebulous for a long time that I wanted to do something creative, something in the arts, And giving it shape has just ended up taking me to stage and film and writing and producing and directing and all of it because there was no one else trying to do what I was doing. And I do not want to propagate the stereotypes about 
Indian American women especially, and I just got fed up of seeing script after script that presented us as, you know, limited in education and limited in cultural savvy and all, all those things. Oh, that's great. That reminds me of that Toni Morrison quote. If the book you want to read doesn't exist, then you must write it. You were yes. doing that in the world of film. You weren't seeing the film you wanted to see, so you decided to make it. And I absolutely want to highlight that when I read Baby Taj all the way back, the play that you wrote, I was so enamored by how authentically you had captured the essence of the Indian women from India as well as from the Indian American diaspora. And I was that does to this day remain an inspiration because I was shocked to find out that the playwright was not of Indian origin and your research and desire to be authentic was commendable. Oh, thank you so much. I noticed that in one of your interviews, it said that you started acting professionally in 2005. And I was thinking, well, that's the year we did Baby Taj. And that's when we met. And I wondered whether that was one of your first professional experiences. Absolutely. And that's why I, to this day, am shocked that I went in there without knowing your stature or Leslie Martinson's stature. And I was there. I just did my thing. And for you, all to be open-minded enough to give a newbie off the street a chance. That gave me the confidence because if you've not been on stage for a long time, you do start questioning if you belong there. And as a grown-up, you have other insecurities that come in. But that did give me the confidence. And then Leslie was kind enough. She recommended me for a few others. A lot of my theater in the Bay Area has happened because someone or the other recommended me and people reach out. Oh, that's great. Well, that makes me feel really good. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about how that transition happened. You had a, a real career in the finance world and you were raising two kids. So what was the journey from being in that world to the world of theater and film? Um, it was hard because as an investment banker in the 90s in New York, um, I don't know how else to say this other than that there is a stripping of the feminine in you that happens. And I wasn't even aware of that until I did Jean Cocteau's The Human Voice and Anne Novak, I bless her soul, she helps me find the feminine once again in me. And she said, you can only show up for rehearsal in skirts and heels. I didn't own any. You have to wear red lipstick. I didn't own any and I just cringed at the thought of wearing red lipstick, just small things. And she would make me cut roses every morning before we started rehearsal. She really worked with my character. It was a one person play and the character is called The Woman. She was a Parisian and uses all the, you know, in that fan of a woman's arsenal, all those emotions. And I didn't have access to those or I had buried them so far within me as a finance professional in New York that it took that transition and I really thank her for making me aware of my own strength and the range of emotions and vulnerabilities that I carried within me that we tend to just brush down and shove down under us to project a very firm exterior. Wow. So were you still working in finance when you moved from New York to the Bay Area? Technically, yes, I was on sabbatical, but I think September 11th had a lot to do with the change in mindset for me as well. I was working very close to the World Trade Center and my daughter was registered at the emergency daycare center at the World Trade Center. So the reality of what could have been was just too potent 
And so when we moved to the Bay Area, I did not go back to the corporate world. And it was a much harder time. I mean, the economy had taken a, a hit and it wasn't that easy to find childcare and whatnot. So I stayed at home with the kids and I kept itching to do something after having done those 110 hour work weeks and traveling the world for the chemicals industry, which is what I was working in. Suddenly to only be a homebody was hard. And that's when I read a lot. And I kept itching to come back to stage somehow, not knowing how I would accomplish that. Mm -hmm. And I do remember you bringing your son in to the audition. <laughs> there was a part for a child, but he was a little young. But I remember he was just so adorable. <laughs> and, and clueless, right? He was as clueless as I was. But it was, you know, that's where you just have to put yourself out there. And things might not happen right then, but things do connect and, you know, give it time and things will go in the direction that you want. So that was me letting the world know of my intentions. Yeah. So you're kind of a triple threat acting, writing, directing. Do you see yourself as one of those first and foremost, or are they sort of all just really integrated? You know, one of the best things I read somewhere that a woman can have it all, but not all at the same time. I tried in Trail Past Prejudice, my first short film, I tried being actor, director and uh, writer, but I couldn't do justice to being a director while also being on camera, nor could I do justice to being an actor. At least, you know, one is critical of oneself and I wasn't uh, creatively satisfied with that process. So in my second film, Mum, I cast someone else so that I could handle the behind the scenes better. So I can do all of these things at different times, but trying to do everything all at the same time, I personally feel uh, is not the conducive to, to telling the story, which is where my heart is. I want to do the best by the story, not by myself. Let's talk about your process as a writer a little bit, because you've written a number of film scripts, short films, and a couple of features. Can you give us an overview of what your writing process is like? How do you get from the genesis of an idea to a finished script? So counter to what the world feels, and a lot of people feel that you just need to be uh, dedicated and committed and sit down and write. I feel dedicated and committed to letting the thoughts percolate in my head. I'm not one that, you know, the moment a thought comes, I write it down because I tried that in the past. And then when I revisit that thought, it means nothing to me because there is no context. There is nothing around it. And I love going on long walks. And that's where the thought evolves and there is a why and what happens then and what part of the thought do I want to focus on what is the point of view that I feel resonates best with me and how I would do that so when I come back I might lose the verbiage of the thought but I'm not going to lose the core of the thought in itself and as a writer I can put alternate verbiage but that essence of the thought is there I think that's where my investment banking and over-analytical skills come in handy. I analyze thought to a great extent. So my, my writing in itself might not be captivating in one sentence or two sentences. You know, some people are great at one-liners. Mine is a whole experience. And in that, the thought that I'm trying to put forth comes through. I never force myself to just sit down and write. Once all the thoughts have distilled, then I can crank out a screenplay very quickly because all the 
pre-work is done. I know what my characters are looking for, what their obstacles are, what their wounds are, what they are up against. And I do that justice to each character. So I know there are different voices. All my characters then are not going after the same thing. That's really cool. So you're doing just a lot of the work internally while moving around, walking, looking yeah. like you're living your life. Yeah. <laughs> the script yeah. is coming together so that when you sit down, it's just like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Then it's just reporting rather than creating. There's a little bit of an, I don't know, age element to it too. I can't sit down and write for a long time without some part of my body's beginning to ache. So I need to do the thinking ahead and the writing is just, you know, a dump down of all that thought in the head. <laughs> and and when the idea first comes to you, does it arrive as a collection of characters or as a theme or a story or is it different every time? I wish I had a great answer for that. I've been a visual person and a visual learner for a long time and I did not recognize that until I did that one woman show and when my director would say something I said okay that's on page 72 bottom left that's what you're okay that's where you want me to be so I'm a visual person so when I have a thought yes there are characters that start emerging but there isn't clarity about the characters initially but because mine are always impact driven I see the scenes it's hard to say how that scene came into being because a lot of the locations and and the thought that I'm expressing is not something that I've experienced. But I, I recently wrote a scene in a commission feature script where this person is grieving the loss of his parents. He's kind of in a slumber state and he's running through a forest and there are squirrels throwing acorns at him. I have no idea why that came about, but in showing his state of delirium, that was the visual that came. And I, you know, I wish there was an analysis of why I think these things come up, but it, it just did. It surprised me too. So I, I leave myself open to be surprised as well. That's great. That's like a gift from the subconscious. <laughs> you don't want yeah. anything to be too easily analyzed, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I read your wonderful screenplay, Flares, which has been getting lots of acclaim about a, a group of women who were school friends in Delhi, and they meet up several decades later in California. I noticed there are a lot of secrets that are revealed bit by bit, both to the characters and to the audience. You do it through a lot of jumping back and forth between periods that are 20 years apart and periods that are 10 years apart. I'm curious about how you landed on the structure. Was that part of what formed in your head or did you initially write it in a different way and then start moving the scenes around to see how they would fit? Um, so in my first draft, there was a lot more present and the reflections were a part of it, but were not as significant. And one of the initial feedbacks that I got when I submitted it for some coverage was that the younger portion that happened 20 years ago in Delhi was very interesting and that I should bolster that. And I felt the value of giving the young and innocent girls some credence in this film rather than it just being a reflection of mature women holding on to secrets as well as happy memories of times spent in the past. So the structure evolved over time. I always wanted it to be somewhat of a back and forth, but I did not realize how heavily it would go back to Delhi. But it is an intrinsic part of who I am. I'm a Delhi girl at heart and will always be, even though Delhi has progressed and changed in ways that I cannot even fathom, but I, I will never give up my claim to being a Delhi girl. 
But yeah, so the structure, it can be confusing, but I also saw that NBC show, that amazing show that went back and forth in time with the three siblings, the triplets. Oh, is it This Is Us? This Is Us, yes. And when I saw that, I said, oh, that's exactly what I want to do. And I had a little bit of that, but I then felt more confident to incorporate that. Well, it's a powerful building of suspense for the audience. You know, little by little, you learn in these pieces, what are the underlying issues? I thought it was very powerful. Thank you. You used the word impact-driven. I'm an impact-driven writer. What does that mean? You know, and again, at different stages of life, it means different things. Today, when I look back at my whole host of experiences, I feel, you know, when I was in India, I felt that women in the West have it all. They have access to resources and education. But on so many levels, women's experience worldwide is very similar. And every day you come across a new story and you say, oh, my God, this is still happening. And it's not just in, you know, some part in rural India. It it just happened to this young, beautiful 22-year-old girl in Wyoming. So the sense of what women have to put up with, and I'm in awe of all women who push through beyond patriarchy and restrictive mindsets to get their viewpoint across, to stand up and accomplish whatever they are accomplishing in whichever field. I myself feel that I haven't done that. I gave in to patriarchal pressures for a very long time, thinking or perhaps preconditioned in my mindset that that was all I should be and that was all I could do. And today I feel that, you know, unless someone gives voice to these things. There are so many women out there who are not able to speak for themselves. And uh, unfortunately, there's so many women whose voices and choices as well as lives have been taken away from them. They're not there to speak for themselves. But I don't know if I can make a dent in any way today, but I would not feel that I've done right by me if I go through life without having raised my voice for these countless women who've been subject to coercive control. Mm, yeah, and that comes across very powerfully in Flair's that theme of women struggling for control over their own lives. Yeah. I watched your short film Mom as well, which is basically a scene between two strangers meeting at the scene of a suicide, and it manages to have incredible emotional power with almost no dialogue. So I was curious about the writing of that. Did it come to you right away that it would be almost without language, or did you explore different ways of telling it? You know, I was a parent of a high schooler when the Silicon Valley cluster suicides were taking place. and With each suicide, when I would sit down and try to talk to my high schooler, it became harder and harder to explain and bring them out. There was this complete sense of gloom and despair with them. And no matter how hard I tried, I felt the wall. The words weren't making an impact. And I felt the most powerful connection was happening when I just sat there in silence, in empathy, because they just needed to grieve. And that was this collective process of grief in our community at that time. So uh, yes, right from the beginning, I wanted this to be an interplay of light and darkness, no dialogue, because, you know, words lose meaning. And for someone who's got those internal voices and turmoil going on, they're not open, there is an invisible fortress around them. And the words have no meaning then. And especially between strangers, being an immigrant, I feel 
we may not have the same references or the, the same context to talk about. And we are often misinterpreted in that, but we are all unified in what we experience as humans and emotions. And I wanted this to be about human connection and empathy rather than about words. It's very hard as a writer for me to take away the power of words and just make this an immersion into the experience of um, suicidal teen and a grieving mother. Yeah, it's very powerful. That segues into another question I have, which has to do with the difference between writing for the stage and for the screen. Because yes. um, I'm a playwright and I haven't read a lot of screenplays. So when I was reading yours, I was really struck by the level of visual description, both of the shots and the characters, and a lot of how the characters are revealed through physical style, through fabric, through color. It's, it's almost like reading a novel with that level of detail, which you don't tend to find in contemporary plays. So I was curious about the difference for you when you're writing for the stage and you're writing for the screen. Do you approach it differently? So first and foremost, a good screenplay should not have that level of detail. Oh, <laughs> um, however, that was my first screenplay ever. So I was writing with the aim of directing it as well. So I wrote a lot of details so that I can imagely visualize. And in fact, the color and fabric, et cetera, that you mentioned, that was something I had laid down for the five women to come across as very different Indian American women. You have traveled in India, you've written about India, so you have an understanding. But for most people, when they see an Indian American character, they feel all Indian American characters are the same. And I wanted that differentiation to come through, these are five women from very different walks of life that had started out at the same place and then many years later are reconnecting. And no matter what pursuit, whether it's a journalist in New York or a, a bureaucrat from India or an entrepreneur from Vegas or a homemaker from Silicon Valley, they've all had different experiences, but yet they are united in a certain aspect. So I, I wanted to create that difference between them, even for me visually. And I think that's why that level of detail you see uh, in my subsequent scripts, I have learned that you do not overwrite, you do not provide as much detail. And I've learned to purge things down. I didn't mean it as a criticism. No, I no, no. But I know it now. I know better now. <laughs> OK, because I know film is a visual medium. Um, and so, you know, I'd imagine you're thinking more in the visual realm, whereas in plays, maybe you're thinking more in the language realm. I don't know, though. I mean, there's action and visuals in, in plays as well. Yeah, and I, I think there is that difference that in film, they, and now I've learned, that you should write for grand visuals. You want to be transported into something big. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? Even though films like uh, The Twelve Angry Men or, or Room, they were all in a very narrow setup, and it was an emotional journey that we admired. But when you're writing a play for stage, you can still write big, but you're limited by space in some way. And, you know, film lends itself to more of a photographic element. And you can use that as a reference point in the script. So they are very different. And I think now for Playground, it is going to be an interesting experience for me to adapt and bring my writing vocabulary in a playwriting setup. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about how they, they also say film is a director's medium because the director has so much power 
to direct the eye of the viewer in yeah. ways beyond what a stage director has, because a stage director, you can do so much with lighting, but someone could be watching the background characters. Exactly. exactly. And that made me curious if you prefer to keep directing your own work or whether you would be interested in turning your work over to other directors and seeing what they do with it. So I think uh, 2020 was a great time to reflect and figure out. I was supposed to shoot flares in 2020. I had LOI signed with some um, recognizable names and award-winning actors, and it didn't happen for obvious reasons. I would like to direct, but I... If someone more experienced and, you know, I'll just throw it out. If Mira Nair wants to direct this film about women from Delhi, uh, I would be more than happy to just be the screenwriter and let her have her pass at it. In film, unfortunately, there is a commercial aspect of things. If you cannot produce it, it means nothing. So those are restrictions and limitations that I am evaluating and understanding. And that's why I started taking commission projects where I would write the script and just send it off into the world and, you know, whoever, wherever the producers can take it. So, yeah, I am writing for other people, too, now. Oh, great. So tell me about your directing process. What's that like? Oh, wow. Um, I... Again, because I'm a visual person, I visualize what's happening. And I think as a director, what I enjoy the most is it takes you beyond the actors and the narrative. It takes you into the entire shot and all elements, everything that is included in that shot matters to the story. The darkness, the light, how things are falling, which angle, how you're approaching the characters, all of that becomes a vocabulary that is communicating with the audience. Um, so my directing process is, it does start from the actor's viewpoint. Once I have confidence in the story, I work with the actors, do the whole script analysis, break everything down, then leave it on set. Again, because I'm all, I've also been wearing the producer's hat, there's just a limited amount of time and you just have every person has to just bring it because there's so many elements to focus on. So I've worked in a very guerrilla indie style space. You just have to keep things moving on set. Then I really enjoy post-production where you look at all the footage you have and you say, can you weave a story? And often that story or the detailed thought emphasis differs from what I had first envisioned in the script. And I'm open and okay with that. And I, I mark down exactly what time codes of um, action I want included. And then I collaborate with the editor who then, you know, I've had good editors for both my films, I feel, who've brought in so much in their own sense in terms of pacing of shots and pacing of emotions. Um, but I really enjoy post because then I can really sink my teeth in and have more creative control. On set, there's just so much unpredictability with so many moving parts and so many variables that I wish I get to a point where there is enough production funding that, you know, I can sit back in the director's chair and sweetly smile and just talk to my actors. And I hope to get there someday, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So sometimes in post, do you see things that you didn't notice when they were going by, like cool things that happened that you hadn't realized were there? Yeah, a few shots that I incorporated are before action and after cut. Because, you know, by choice, I wanted to work with new actors for this and I wanted Bay Area locals. Neither of them had any film credits before this. 
And the moment you call action, I do not like calling action because it, especially with newer actors, they feel, okay, now I need to perform. And then they go all in their heads. They lose that authenticity. And there are there moments that, you know, there's an actor doing, readying himself for action that I liked, that I incorporated. Or an actor just looking lost or tired and exhausted before we call action and then they spur into an energetic space. So I've been able to use those elements. And that's why as a director, I need to see those moments or emotions passing their faces in post that on set, your focus is so much on action and cut and okay, did we get the shot? Did we how many shots do we have left? How much time do we have left? All that just takes over and you cannot focus on the nuances that I've been able to in post. Mm, Yeah. There was a quote of yours that I read in an interview with Desi Lifestyle Magazine that I thought was just lovely. You said, here's my personal mantra for your readers. Think amorphous. Never edit, hold back, or reconfigure a thought before you've had a chance to express it fully. Thoughts should be free of limitations of shape or structure, hence amorphous. I thought that was just a really beautiful piece of wisdom about the creative process. Yes, think amorphous has been my mantra. In fact, I had it on my card for a long time and most people couldn't understand it. So I did not remember the context of that quote and I appreciate you refreshing my memory about it. But that's what I feel. Having grown up in a patriarchy, I feel that even at the thought stage, there are gatekeepers and limitations and boundaries that, oh, we can't even think like that because that's not us. And that in so many ways just squashes women's potential. And I think those boundaries were set in order for women to remain restricted in their roles, to serve a certain purpose, to serve the family, to serve the menfolk. But I don't know if I give credit to my education or having been in the United States, I do feel that if you put those curbs to your thought process, then all is lost to begin with. If you can at least think it, then you might be able to at some point find the courage to act on it or say it. But at least in your head, you are clear about what you believe. If you start limiting your own thought process because of what others have told you or the society demands, then you are then you're truly lost. And, you know, that shouldn't happen to any individual. I agree. Thank you. Now, I noticed among your laurels and accolades, you've gotten several awards for pitches and log lines. Can you talk about what makes a good pitch and a good log line? (laughs) I wish there was one answer because I have evolved myself in this and learned so much through podcasts and listening to others do this. When I pitched at the Austin Film Festival's finals, I just had my passion and sincerity. I did not have the structure. And the winning pitch in my segment was a woman who brought a visual right up front. So you have a very limited amount of time, 90 seconds or sometimes just 60 seconds. And you can paint a picture or you can present your passion. So she went in with, and I still don't remember what her full story was, but I remember it started with a mother throwing a bunch of clothes with hangers in a suitcase. And imagine having a whole bunch of hangers in a suitcase and very few dresses. That visual of hangers in a suitcase is going to stay. Paint a picture with your words in pitches, and that is going to communicate well. Everyone knows that you're passionate about your project, but never omit painting a picture because ultimately you're trying to showcase a film with words. 
And then I was most recently invited to uh, TIFF as part of their Emerging Filmmakers Initiative. And I saw the pitches at the Creators of Color Incubator. And uh, the pitches that I remember most had videos of where they're going to shoot or characters who are going to be in it talking about it, some kind of a video exploration, because that makes it come alive in the minds of audience members who are just looking at it for 60 seconds or 90 seconds. So visuals just land in our brains so much more than just words. That makes sense. And a log line, that's an even shorter summary of your proposed film than a pitch, right? Yes, that's the other thing that there is no consistency in the industry uh, about, uh, you know, they say it can be 60 to 75 words, but the average that people expect it to be are 25 to 30 words, which is very little. And it's supposed to be a summation of the first act of the feature, highlighting the protagonist, the obstacle, and what they need to do and what's at stake. All of that in 25 to 30 words. So that's a long line. So it's kind of like poetry in that you're having to really make sure each word makes an impact. Yes, it is hard. And people spend so much time refining their log line because that's what you query managers, etc. with. And if they like your log line, they'll respond. But I feel, you know, this is my personal take that you spend so much time doing the log line and you still may not get anywhere with it. So it is a technical tool that you're required to have in your pitch text, et cetera, but you know, give it a couple of passes and then move on. Mm. You've acquired the producing skill as well, right? Yes. Which gives you a lot more power than someone who is just writing scripts and basically dependent on someone choosing them. Yes. Was that a deliberate decision on your part to cultivate those skills so that you could be sure your work would get made? I think, again, because of my finance background, I felt that the biggest stumbling block for writers and directors is that their projects don't get picked up unless you have, you've been to a huge film school or you have someone big backing you. And to understand the Hollywood process and the gatekeepers, I just kept coming across that you need to have a budget, you need to know the timeline, you need to commit to it, the contracts and all that. So That's why I applied for the Sundance Collab producing program so that I at least I can talk about it knowledgeably. Ideally, I don't want to produce because I feel that once I put the business hat, the creative hat kind of goes to the back burner. And in any tussle between a director and a producer, the producer always wins, which is not what I want. So I would like to have producing partners, but I don't want anyone to feel that, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. So I've even learned editing so that I have a viewpoint and I ask my editors for what is reasonably achievable. So it's the same thing with producing, understanding the process, how many places you have to pitch to, which are the real decision makers that can make a difference versus everyone calls themselves a producer, but not everyone has the wherewithal to raise funding, to get the tax incentives, to get it a distribution deal. Again, in filmmaking, you can get a film made and so many people have gotten films made. But then they lose the shirts off their back there. They don't have any avenue for distribution. Things have changed a lot now with streaming. But over the last 10 years, this transition has happened. And I, I needed to know before I proceeded. So I learned, I've learned by doing as well as taking workshops. Mm, yeah. So what are your plans and dreams going forward? I'm excited as well as nervous about what's to come. But I, I remain committed to writing. So I do 
turn away acting projects when they interfere with my writing or the filmmaking. I want to make writing my priority. Hopefully, I can direct some projects. But if I find more suitable people to direct, I'm happy to let go. And I am also working on a novel. As you said, that Flares was written. It has so much detail that it lends itself. I've written 50,000 words of a novel that's along the lines of Flares. But that has gone in the back burner because there was so much else happening this year. I want to take that up. And... Um, Two feature scripts I've written, one kind of a dark comedy thriller set in Silicon Valley. That's a pilot that I want to write the rest of the season in. And uh, shoot another short film called Stain Resistant that I have a couple of key creative collaborators on. So the hopes and dreams are big. Let's see where it goes. Well, I wish you all the luck in the world. And thank you so much, Shruti. It's been so great talking with you. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. I'm just so honored and humbled that you asked me. It has been my absolute pleasure. And thank you for tuning into Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please join me next time when I'll be speaking with legendary singer-songwriter and activist, Holly Neer. You can listen to past episodes and get on our mailing list to be notified of future episodes, as well as my blog and off-leash writing workshops at offleasharts.com. Until next time, take good care and stay off-leash.